I'm Kate Bowler, and this is Everything Happens. I'm a historian, author, aggressively fast walker, but lately in a world that promises endless progress, even now in a pandemic, I've realized I just need to be a person. It's hard to give up on the feeling that the life you want is just out of reach. If only you tried. Eat this food, find that relationship, just get the kids graduated or the parents this kind of care. Only then will I feel different, better, whole. But that's not the way this works. When I was 35, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And here's the very fun thing about that. The world loves you better when you are shiny, when you are cheerful, when you still believe that your best life now is right around the corner. I've written multiple books on the history of the idea that you can always fix your life. So I'm going to be the one to say it. There are some things we can change and some things we can't. And it's okay that life isn't always getting better. We can have beauty and meaning community and love, and we will need each other if we're going to tell the truth. Life is a chronic condition, and there's no cure for being human. We are all living in the past, at least every now and then. Nostalgia, the stories we tell, the high school reunions that happen all the time on Facebook. We are a memory book. But what happens if we get stuck there? Today, we're talking about trauma and the way it keeps us stuck, the way it continues to organize our experiences and our thoughts and our reactions as if our past is still happening. Some unchangeable and immutable past, something that seems to reach out into the future, whether we want it to or not. Trauma, as our very esteemed guest today explains, compromises the brain area that communicates the actual physical and embodied feeling of being alive. If you want to learn more about the world of memory and the hope of change, this guest is for you. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk has spent his career studying how children and adults adapt to traumatic experiences and has worked tirelessly to develop effective treatments. His efforts resulted in the founding of the Trauma Center in Massachusetts that does research and offers nationwide training to a variety of people in caregiving, educational, and mental health professions. He has taught at universities and hospitals around the world and is the author of the best-selling book, and it is absolutely stunning, The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. I am so excited to have you today. When I was first diagnosed, your book was actually the first gift I received that was not trying to sell me a magical cure for pain. So I'm just especially grateful for you. Terrific. I'm glad to be here. Your work began when you studied Vietnam vets at the VA in the 1970s. What did you see when you began this work? What we saw was a bunch of guys who, at very short term time ago, must be very competent and uh, skillful people who, and something had been knocked out of them Mm. and they um, were sort of frozen, terrified of themselves and they kept exploding in anger and rage in an uncontrolled way. 
Yeah. Their chief complaint was, I have become a monster and nobody should be living with me, basically. Mm. I was having babies at home around the same time. Yeah. I noticed that my one and two-year-olds were behaving in much the same way. But when they had the temper tantrum, I was not worried uh, because I knew it would sooner or later outgrow that. But I was not sure about these about these thirty-year-old uh, veterans of the war, and so I got very curious about what causes some brains to mature and minds, and what causes some people to get stuck in uh, being frozen and being trapped. It sounds too like I I only have a limited understanding of like the history of diagnosis, but but that there was no formal diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder at the time. No, there was actually nothing like it. The phenomenon has been described off and on for at least 150 years now, but it keeps sort of being pushed pushed away. And it seems like people have a really hard time grasping how much how damaging life can be for some people. Yeah. And so how do you define trauma broadly? A trauma is simply an experience that overwhelms your coping mechanisms. It's so horrendous that you are just paralyzed. Uh, and frozen and flailing around, but you basically lose your mind. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing you can do, actually, yeah. It's unbearable. It's intolerable. Yeah. It's horrendous. So it's not like, tell me your trauma story. No, you cannot tell me your trauma story because you go there, you get too freaked out and too upset and too frozen to actually tell the whole thing to somebody. A lot of folks in this uh, community here have have some experience with trauma, either as um, as a patient in a sort of a complicated medical situation or as a caregiver or as someone who has entered into a profession that's incredibly emotionally expensive. And, And one question we get a lot is about the people's capacity for trauma. It seems that some people might go through a, a similar experience and are unfazed and other people are absolutely leveled. So what seems to make the difference? Are some people just born more resilient? Well, I wouldn't quite put it that way. Um, No, because nobody has the same experience. Yeah. If we both were, but you become my best friend and you become my biggest comrade, which oftentimes happens in the war, and something happens to you, I'm going to be very affected by it. Well, if you and I go off to war together and we happen not to like each other very much. <laughs> Which would never happen, but continue. But, but you know, and something would happen to you, I'd go like, okay, that's another one. Yeah. So but the, the impact of it is so different from one person to another because there's so many factors that go into it. Yeah. And certainly uh, temperamental factors are one thing. Uh, having been trained has a huge, makes a huge experience in that. For example, um, when you go to medical school, you get really trained to deal with quite horrendous situations all the time. Uh, For example, right now with the coronavirus, people talk about the medical professionals, the nurses as heroes. I don't think they would consider themselves that because that's what they opted for. Yeah. That's what you train for. That's what you expect and what you choose to some degree. And as long as you're able to do what you need to do to do a good job, you're by and large going to be okay. But if the insurance company denies you being able to do what you're supposed to do, yeah. the hospital administrator doesn't give you the equipment that you need, 
then you really get very messed up. Yeah. Yeah. The way you point in your work so often to the experience of helplessness seemed to be such a theme. The natural thing for people when we get exposed to lousy stuff, which is happens to everybody uh, some of the time in their lives, some people more than others, is to run and to flee and to get the hell out of there or to punch somebody in the mouth. <laughs> uh, which your little brother may have done to you. <laughs> yeah. But if those avenues of fight and flight are cut off, then something goes really wrong. And it usually has to do with being held down, being mobilized, yeah. um, just standing helplessly by when something horrendous is happening. Uh, your kid crosses the street and gets run over by a driver, and you just stand there and go, oh my God. Is it? really the, the oh my god experience like yeah there's nothing i can do to to change the situation yeah the ability to do something yeah yeah that sounds right in basic training in the army and training for the police and training for fire people and doctors nurses we get trained to always think about what you should do next uh-huh and so that you see something for example, I had a, v- a very vivid memory of, as a medical student or as an intern, there was a three-year-old kid who was brought in with burn wounds all over his body. It's a horrendous thing to look at. Yeah. But I was trained enough to go, okay, the kid is getting dehydrated, we need to put something on the skin, we need to get some fluids into him. So uh, my training had prepared me to do something. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that's a very critical issue. Yeah. And of course, what soldiers get trained and other people. Um, of course, uh, when you're a patient and you go to a hospital, you're not trained to take care of yourself and you do, depend on other people to do it for you. Huh? Yeah. Another part of your work that I was so interested in is, um, is, is the way people integrate the experience that happened to them. So if, say, a trauma occurs at the hands of the people who are supposed to be taking care of you, then there's some sort of fundamental inability to square, like, this is your role. This was my role. We were supposed to be a certain way. And then we get sort of frozen. Yeah. I had to say, it's something that is not really central in people's thinking about human beings um, in our culture, in psychology, but we are relational creatures. Yeah. And we, we're always thinking about the people we love, the people we're close to. Uh, that's really, we are social creatures. We're like monkeys with a big brain. Huh? Yes. Uh, <laughs> and, and so we, we count on each other. That's really what relationships and families are about. You can count on each other. And so if somebody who you count on suddenly starts hitting you or doing terrible things to you, you go like, oh my God, my whole system of security is, is on side, and I have nobody to go to because this is the person who was supposed to protect me. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, so, so that attachment issue is very central and oftentimes that's sort of left out of the equation. Yes. And that's true for soldiers. If they can trust their commanders, if they can trust their comrades, they by and large will be okay. Mm. And that's, that's true for even when you're a patient in the hospital and you really trust your doctors, yeah. you know that they have their, your best interest in mind, it makes all the difference in the world. 
Yes. Feeling like the people that are supposed to care for you, your interests are not fundamentally their interests. So I, I graduated from medical school 40 years ago and, and medicine used to be very different. And it was, there was no for-profit medicine. I was trained to be very oriented towards what does this person need and we'll do whatever we can to help this particular person. I think that has been severely undermined in recent times. Yeah. And I cannot wait for a more rational healthcare system to come in place where your primary interest again is how do I help this person I'm dealing with rather than how do I please my insurance company? Yeah, I have to say, when you describe it that way, I don't think it was, for instance, like just the experience of of suddenly finding out that I had stage four cancer that was inherently traumatic. It was trying to navigate this endless obstacle course of of, you know, being denied insurance and then having you know, a really painful clinical trial experience. And then it was, the, it was the gauntlet feeling in which every time I thought I would get care and then didn't, that just sort of like shut down my brain. Yeah, and I think when you talk about stuff like that, it almost immediately becomes a, a political issue. Yeah. Uh, an, an idea of how do we live together? What are our obligations to each other? And uh, psychiatry wants to sort of keep it down to the individual level and say, yeah. you're messed up. Yes, you're right. Uh, yeah. For lots of people who have, are dealing with very terrible illness is exactly that uh, they don't, they get denied care, they get shuffled from one person to another. And that does not happen in more civilized countries. Yes, it really, these, I mean, it's, you're right. It sounds like so much of what we learn from the nature of trauma is, is it gets down to the question of who are we to one another? And how do we manage the pain and then the beauty of that interdependence? Yeah, and you know, and people naturally are social creatures, and most people try to do well by the people who they care for. Yeah, and of course, if you then live in a racially split society, you think, oh, but those people aren't like me, and so it's okay if they don't get the care that I I need. You know, in most people's families, when somebody gets sick, the family steps up to the plate, I think. Yeah, yeah. But also in our society right now, the idea that we're there for each other is oftentimes sorely lacking. Yeah. Could you give me some examples of like traumatic responses so people can sort of get a sense of the scale? Being denied medical care for... For, for example, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I I may live or die. And when I go to some fancy doctor in a white coat and a fancy hospital, I trust that they will look at me and say, give me what I need. And give me what the insurance company tells us. You, you write, um, traumatized people chronically feel unsafe inside their bodies that the past is alive in a form of gnawing interior discomfort. What do you mean by like the past is alive? That's such a great, that's such a great image. The, the story of like, you know, you, you hint a little bit about what happened to you. And that story by now is an old story. Yeah. For it may live on in your body. And so the moment you hear me say the word hospital. Yes. <laughs> I am alert. <laughs> Yeah, like or that's where they kill people. Like, yeah. And so uh, you have intense an intense emotional reaction to something that's for other people. It's like, what do you mean? Don't be silly. Don't get it. Yeah. Hospital. Like, and so there is something 
right now and where your body reacts as if you're back there again. Uh-huh. There's nothing with reason, nothing with understanding. Yeah. Explain it to people, but say, okay, now I know why I'm so stupid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but explaining things doesn't necessarily, it doesn't make it go away. Huh? No, no. And we want to forget, but like, I mean, mentally, we, like, yeah. but our bodies, it, you know, the way you describe it so beautifully, like, like our bodies just won't let us. Yeah. But it's a very, very complex issue. Because, of course, you need to remember, and you need to know, yes, this is what happened to me. Yeah. Happened to me then and there, and I was so old. And today, I'm a different person, and my life is different. And so the memory of it becomes, becomes a trigger, and you become afraid of feeling what you feel. Yes, yeah. Uh, and then you start running away from it. And how do people usually run away from it? by drugs and alcohol. And there's both psychiatric drugs and alcohol. And I think in many ways they're very similar. When you go to a psychiatrist and you feel upset, they give you a pill to make it go away. Yeah. And part of my my interest in this field is because I started off with the psych- as a psychopharmacologist. I did the first studies on Prozac and Zoloft and wow. drugs like that. Yeah. Oh, but drugs really don't do the trick. You need to- <laughs> The underlying issue, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and so the problem is that you don't want to go there. Yeah. You don't want to remember. And yet the harder you run away from it, the the more disturbed you become. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean that our bodies remember? As so just from I'm in humanities, I know nothing, everything you say will be a surprise and a joy to me. The imprint is in bodily sensations. Yes. And so but it's not a memory. It is like you freak out and you curl up in fear. Yeah. yeah. Or you see somebody who looks a particular way and you want to punch him. And that's not a memory. And when people say, why do you want to hit that guy? You go like, I don't like his face. And, and because you don't know. It's so deep down in the dark recesses of your mind that you don't know you want to hit this guy because he reminds you of somebody who did something bad to you when you were five years old. You know? Yeah, yeah. You don't make those connections. Actually, oftentimes that's why you have to go to therapy. Yeah. What your body has stored or what your body sensations are. Why do I hate that somebody touches me anymore? Like, yeah. Uh, and then you get this big issue of shame. Yes. Because you feel these things that don't make any sense to you or anybody else. And you feel angry that nobody gets it, and then you get irritable and grouchy, and yeah. uh, before too long, everything sort of starts disintegrating because your whole body keeps behaving as if you're back there again. I imagine that so many people, in hearing about your research, just find it so—I don't know—liberating to know that our responses to these awful things that have happened, be it like hypervigilance or detachment or fight or flight or nightmares or numbness, that all of these are in some very intense way normal and that, that our, our brains and our bodies have in fact changed. Yeah. And it's, it's not helpful to pretend that everything's the same. Right. They're normal and completely understandable, but at the same time, we have to do something to do something about it. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I'd love to talk a bit about the role of agency when it comes to trauma. After reading your book, 
you know, it seems it seems like our experience of of agency, just our ability to act seems to lessen the impact of trauma on our lives. A very large part of the treatment, uh, as I see it, is to help people actually to do something. Yeah. Psychology, traditionally, is uh, people sit on chair, on their butt and talk about what happens. <laughs> That's also good. There's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> it's very good to be able to talk about it. But you also need to do something. Yeah. You need to say the sense of, indeed, of I can. Yeah. So, uh, um, uh, you can start with yoga or with martial arts or with tango dancing or but uh, certainly, uh, when we work with kids, we're very much into helping kids to move again. And actually, adults also, because I learned a lot from working with the kids. Yeah. And adults are just grown-up kids. so Relatively grown-up. For me, one of the things that really has helped me, um, part of what I really took from, from reading your book, is the experience of, I guess, disassociation of just like separateness of the more sort of the longer my treatment went on and the more, the longer I had cancer, the more I just felt like I was uh, just a brain, a hopefully nice brain that just floated around having important conversations with people. And it was very difficult to, to create an experience of being re-embodied when my body was a thing that tried to murder me all the time. <laughs> so yeah. it's just like, oh, this thing isn't helpful. But um, I did find that rolfing, this kind of special form of physical therapy really helped me because it, so much of what it was doing was was sort of mapping my body in space again. Like you would lie on the ground and they would say things like, what impression does your body make on the sand? And I would uh -huh. think, oh, right, I'm in this thing. This yep. thing is part of me. I'm glad you discovered that. Yeah. Because that's not sort of mainstream in our culture. And yet that very, that re-embodiment is terribly, terribly important. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It felt like it was relearning how to live inside something that I had sort of conveniently shed. Like I was hoping yeah. it was just like a snake skin. Goodbye. Right. I don't need you. <laughs> when you go through cancer treatment, you, uh, you're well off dissociating your body off. Yeah. It's a nice response for the time being. Yeah. But afterwards, you need to reclaim your body somehow. And yeah. If you don't, you really um, has very serious consequences because your body is both a source of pain and a source of pleasure. Mm -hmm. and so if you... If you cut off sensation in your body, which many times people do somewhat successfully, you also cut off your avenue for pain and for pleasure and for sensuality and um, yeah, feeling satisfied and feeling alive. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that sounds right. Yeah. I mean, even in the last year, I, with uh, I mean, the experience of helplessness, the the just fear about sickness, the joys of the pandemic. Uh, just really simple things like um, learning how to um, just eat and enjoy what I was eating. When especially since I lost so much of my taste buds after after so much chemo, it's funny how much just learning to live. I guess to like, yeah, learning to live back inside this, you know, 175 pounds was was kind of a kind of an undertaking. That's excellent because uh, you know hospitals oftentimes don't pay much attention to these issues. Yeah. And it's very important to, uh, to help people to really feel their bodies and be in their bodies and have, take pleasure in their bodies. Of course, doctors themselves are oftentimes not very good at it. Yeah. I think one of the, the sort of intellectual spaces and sort of, in my, well, sort of spiritual, emotional 
places we've been trying to inhabit is um, just finding the that sort of gentle little zone between the terrifying fatalism of of just sliding into the idea that well nothing is possible well you know trauma's happened we're living in the after of our lives i guess there's nothing we can do but well, we we want to stay out of that because it's it's hopeless it's um ultimately fatalistic it's like too scary a place to live and so often there is something we can do but it's not necessarily this script of um hyper agency endless self-help that is our culture's dominant narrative i mean so so often i think we feel like if something happens to us and even if we're tired in a you know in a medical profession or an educational profession that we're supposed to just immediately pivot back to good better best let's fully regain mastery over our situation and and so much of what i hear in your work is this permission to find that place in between and where we no longer have to pretend that, you know, that we're back to the person we were before, but that there's, but that we do still have to grow and like grow with the things that have happened to us. I am reminded of the poem by Mary Oliver. Mm. Uh, you only have to let that soft animal of your body love what it loves. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I won't say neuroplasticity is a word I use a lot, but you do say that the neuroplasticity of the brain offers offers tremendous hope for people who have experienced yeah, you know, pain. People say that, and it's nice. Uh, <laughs> I like you. Have you ever been married to somebody for 25 years? <laughs> Try to change their annoying habits. <laughs> I have been married for 20 years and I am hearing what you are saying. <laughs> so yes, the brain can change, but boy, it ain't easy. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to argue with you on that. But we can change. That's true, actually. Yeah. But, but, but you need to have a lot of devotion. And, and obviously you're the devoted person. <laughs> your podcast uh, but you need to actually work very hard on something to change it yeah you cannot do it in five minutes or in, in one therapy session or something yeah yes what are you what do you are some of the most hopeful avenues for change if people want to take a next step they're they're thinking about something's happened or they're they're worried that they're maybe stuck in their past what do you recommend you know talking about it is a very good start huh? Yeah being able to say, this is what happened to me, and this is what I had to deal with, is a really good thing. And hopefully you find somebody who tr does not try to fix that. Yeah. Because our job is to find language for ourselves and say, uh, uh, let's say, it's not, not the case for me, I, I had an older brother who always beat me up, and ever since that time I've been very tough with people to make sure they don't beat me up. It's important to know that. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you're going to suddenly become a nice person after you say that, but it's at least important to have an understanding about yourself and about your reactions and the things you deal with. And then you can start going for more specific things. For example, 
if you're haunted by a particular memory, which I wouldn't be surprised if that may have happened to you, yeah, having gone what you go through, and you keep having nightmares about something, or you keep being triggered by something, yeah, uh, very specific things oftentimes respond very well to EMDR. Yeah, tell me about that. It's a very strange treatment where you ask people to to re- recollect a particularly nasty experience. You don't ask them to talk about it. And then you ask them to follow your fingers as you move your fingers from side to side in front of their eyes. Yeah. That's bizarre. And I did the first uh, National Institute of Mental Health funded study on that, and we had a stunningly good results. Amazing. And this past year, we also finally got some money together to do some neuroimaging about the mechanisms. And uh, we saw that these eye movements do change some circuits in the brain so your your brain is able to more own something and to feel like yes this is what happened to me but it happened to me a long time ago Mm -hmm. emdr to my mind is sort of the easiest simplest treatment that that oftentimes works for many people in general one treatment is not enough for most people like you say that you got involved yeah I found rolfing also enormously helpful myself. Having somebody work with you on helping your body to feel what you feel, very important. Uh, So we did this study on yoga for PTSD, and all my colleagues said, that's crazy how you get yoga for PTSD. (laughs) Um, We've gone off the deep end once again. (laughs) And it turned out that yoga was more effective than any medications anybody's ever studied. Mm. Really making commitment to taking care of your body somehow and the movements of your body are terribly important and owning it. Yeah. Doing things with it. Yeah. But I don't think if, I don't know that yoga is any better than tango dancing or (laughs) martial arts. Yeah, yeah. Nobody studies these things, you know. But something to really help you to inhabit your body in a, in a deep way is important. It's very important that the mental work of working on yourself and working with yourself is the single most important thing. Yeah, yeah what a process. Your research also shows the difference in trauma, say, as a child versus experiencing trauma as an adult. How does trauma have a different impact if it, if it takes place at different parts of your development? As a child, everything that happens to you becomes part of you. And so uh, the brain is an experiential organ. The brain is built on the basis of your experiences. So if you are a secure child who can count on the people around them, uh, you, you carry that with you and the structures are in place by the time you go to college. If you get beaten up and surrounded by people are drunk and, and, and do terrible things, your brain becomes the brain of a person who uh, is expecting terrible things to happen and for people to betray them and let them down, um, that becomes the brain that you inhibit. So adult trauma is really very different from childhood trauma. The adult trauma gets superimposed on an existing nervous system. But if you're four, five, six, ten year old, you have a growing brain. So the experience becomes part of how your brain gets formed. That's so interesting. I was just thinking about your your work at the very beginning with uh, with Vietnam vets and and what you learned from th- that grew from their particular experience and how I'm just wondering if you think maybe that our understanding of trauma grows especially when we watch mass trauma take place. It's just wondering if you thought in the wake of COVID that the very specific constellation of mental health issues 
might breed a different understanding of what of what trauma is like. Like, what do we learn, especially about trauma from just watching what COVID has has done to us? Um, I'm very fascinated by this because it's very clear that our society is changing. Yeah. And I, a year ago, I never stared at a blank screen talking to somebody. <laughs> and I hope that at some point that doesn't happen again. So I think the effect of COVID is very different depending on where you are in your life. My friends are all doing very well, actually. And my kids who have children of their own yeah. are doing well because they spend a lot of time with each other and they're well off enough to not be all that worried about their finances. Yeah. But if you're poor and you have kids without a partner, or if you don't have kids and you need to find people who can be your friends and your mates, that's a whole different uh, life thing. And I think like being paired up with somebody who you cannot stand and you're with the two of you in a house. In reports from Spain and France now uh, show there's a 30% increase in domestic violence. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the impact of COVID, people say it's a trauma. No, it's an unpleasant situation, but it can become traumatic depending on what the rest of your life is like. Yeah. As always in our society, uh, when you're poor and you're a person of color, you're likely to get a much harder deal than, than other people do. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh, my word. Thank you so much for doing this. I just have to say your work has given me so much more compassion and I hope nuance around the, the question and nature of trauma. And I'm just I'm really grateful for what you've given to all of us. Dr. Van der Kolk's research on the brain revealed something interesting that maybe you already know from experience. The Broca's area in the frontal cortex is one of our brain's speech centers. It lights up when we're creating language. Without a functioning Broca's area, you cannot put your thoughts and feelings into words. When they did brain scans of people with trauma, whenever someone experienced a flashback of their traumatic event, the Broca's area went offline. The memory of the terrible moment happened and poof, no language. People were physically incapable of putting thoughts and feelings into language. So yes, some horrors are indescribable. Our bodies and brains are unable to find the words to make sense of what we experienced. As his book says, Trauma drives us to the edge of comprehension, cutting us off from language based on common experience or an imaginable past. Friends, look, we're doing it. This thing we're doing together, talking and creating categories and fiddling with how we imagine the world and each other, this is good work. We are healing each other. And though I wish it were easier, I feel so lucky that we have each other. So, after this, call a friend to talk, or maybe do the tango. We need our bodies to move, and we need our shared minds to remember, you are not stuck. We are not stuck when there's a we nudging each other forward.
Don't miss an episode. Be sure to subscribe to Everything Happens wherever you listen to podcasts. And I would love to hear from you. Find me online at Kate Bowler or at katebowler.com. Today's episode was made possible by our partners, Lily Endowment, the Duke Endowment, and Duke Divinity School, who support our faith and media project. We are so grateful for their generosity and investment in what we do. And of course, my perfect team, Jessica Ritchie, our executive producer, Harriet Putman, our associate producer, Keith Weston, our sound designer, and the rest of the Everything Happens crew who make this project so much fun. Dan Wells, AJ Walton, Mary Jo Clancy, JJ Dickinson, Lana Stewart, Kelly Dunlap, Aaron Lane, Jeb and Sammy, thank you. This is Everything Happens with me, Kate Bowler. Thank you.